The Live Exchange Conference is your chance to find out what's happening in the livestock export industry with a program that features thought-provoking and informative speakers. Open to all members of the supply chain, you can network with around 400 delegates from across the country, with several social events and a variety of trade exhibits. Live Exchange is being held on the 9th and 10th of November 2022. Visit liveexchange.com.au to get your tickets. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Tanya Heaslip's childhood on an outback cattle station in Central Australia was full of adventures and extremes, so it's no surprise that her first job as a lawyer was the same. The job? Junior instructing solicitor for the Crown on the Lindy Chamberlain inquiry. The inquiry which ultimately saw all convictions against Lindy Chamberlain quashed. In this episode, Tanya speaks about her experience working that case and how it shaped her career as a lawyer. We explore how Tanya's upbringing in the 1960s led her to choose a sensible career over her passions and how she found the courage to follow her heart later on in life. I started our conversation by asking Tanya what it was like knowing that she would never take over the family property because of her gender. There was no option for me and no option for my sister. Now, it wasn't so bad for me because I was a really bookish child and I was so curious about the outside world. I wanted to know about it. I wanted to learn. But my sister was a true bush kid and she was a brilliant horse rider, brilliant with cattle, understood the land, and she loved it. Uh, and for her, it was much harder because there was no option. There was no way it would ever be handed to her. And I, I remember talking to her not that long ago and she said her it took all of her 20s to come to terms with feeling so disempowered and sad about that fact that because she was a girl, she wouldn't have the land. But anyhow, for me, luckily, I wanted to see other places and do other things. So I knew it wasn't an option. It didn't stop me loving it, though, and needing to come back and filling up my soul. I think I came three times a year, every year for my whole life back here, um, just because I needed to see the blue skies and the red earth and feel the rocks under my feet and that clear air and the space, you know, and the silence of the outback. So I then, um, well, I chose law. I didn't really choose law. I actually wanted to be a foreign correspondent and I wanted to travel the world and listen to people's stories and write them down. 
because I was so curious about what lay out there and I loved writing stories. But my teachers persuaded me that I should do law. And so, mm, kids, you know, what did I know at age 17? I knew nothing and teachers knew best. And so I sacrificed that to do law, which most of my life I regretted because um, I didn't love law. I still don't love law. It was a profession that I ended up in by default. Um, I, I look with admiration and awe at those people who find what they love early in life and do it and spend their life doing it, whereas law for me was a real struggle because I just I didn't have that heart connection. But what I did um, was manage to make law work for me so that I could use it as a basis to travel and write the stories of people. So I've been able to do that more so um, in later years, obviously, than earlier years. How do you not be really bitter and resentful of that? Because I know like from, from knowing you, you're not like that, but to look back and I'm not sure how long your career has gone for, maybe 20, 30 years? Oh, gosh, since um, 1986 I started practising law. So 35 mm, years? Mm, yeah. Mm. So how do you not look back and go, I've just spent 35 years doing something, you know, that not that you like really hated it and didn't want to do it the whole time, but, you know, probably not would have would have been your choice. Like, I've had to do a lot of work around that in myself. Um, I have spent so much of my time in law wanting to get out of it and trying to get out of it and then getting out of it. And then once I get out of it and do something else, I find I'm not trained or equipped for anything else. So I found I've had to go back to it um, because it's the only thing I'm skilled and trained in. And also I did law and worked in law in those early years at a time when you didn't change careers. People went into law for life and that was it. Nobody dropped out of law. You didn't leave it. You didn't try something else. And once you're trained you know, in the legal profession, you're sort of not really fit for anything else unless you're very clever and can work out how to do something else that links to it. But I wasn't that clever or I didn't know how to do that. There are lots of people who have, but – when I started, I couldn't see any other way through. So it's look, it it was tough. It has been tough, but I just have had to look at each opportunity as teaching me something from which I could grow as a person. Um, I could help other people. Being a lawyer means you can most of the time help other people, and that. You know, so there's a sense of satisfaction that what you're doing is useful work. But it did mean all the time on the side I had to do creative stuff to keep my soul alive. So um, I singing and dancing, I was in lots of bands, I was in musicals, I was in theatre, anything where I could dance and sing and act. That was my passion for decades. I did that on the side. I had no idea <laughs> about any of that until just now. Yeah. And also, as you're talking, I just, you know, when like you have a little funny thing that pops into your mind, I just have to share it. I know it's daggy, but, um, sounds like getting into law for you was a life sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Sorry. It's, ve it's very, very good. That is very good. Well, what it made me do was really push the boundaries outside of law to keep my soul alive because in some of the roles I did, I felt like my soul was sucked dry and I'd become very depressed and burnt out. 
Um, so doing theatre, music, dance, singing in bands, I sang everything you could – we had this fantastic band in Alice, in fact, in the 90s. It was almost all my family and friends called George Thoroughbred and the Long Yard Scrubbers. <laughs> and we sang that. I sang in blues bands. I sang in jazz bands. I yeah, did every kind of musical theatre you could imagine. Um, and so that was – that kept the creative energies flowing. And all along, of course, I wrote, underneath I wrote, but that was always a very secret little hobby and I never thought it could come to anything because I'd had to really quash my dream of of being um, a foreign correspondent. But I wrote um, prolifically, I have written prolifically all my life. I've got a thousand journals and diaries and wherever I'd go, I'd document what I was seeing. Um, but there wasn't so much creative. That was soul food and then but getting on a stage and singing um, that is the, that is the biggest high you can get for me. There's just nothing like having that microphone, just like being on School of the Air with my little microphone and, um, belting out a song to a band behind you. And it's just the best. So that kept me going. Do you think it's possible for everyone to have a job that lights their soul on fire or gives them their purpose in life? You know, do you think our purpose uh, or our mission in life, or you know, whatever we're here for, is linked to our job, or or has to be, or should that be the goal? Because I wonder. Mm. I don't think it's possible for everyone. You know, like for all the jobs that exist in the world, um, you know, like someone's got to drive the taxi, someone's got to clean yeah. the toilet, someone's got to do like. There's so many jobs that I don't think anybody grow. When I grow up, I want to be a taxi driver. When I grow up, I want to clean, you know, shopping centre toilets, like, and so I wondered what you were saying about then is like finding the joy in your life that isn't linked to your job. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting question because it's also a very modern day question for our grandparents and great grandparents and those beyond who lived through world wars, depression, the depression era, post-war shortages their whole focus was survival. There was not even the the chance that I, it, it it would have been self indulgent beyond comprehension to think about looking for a job just for your own personal benefit, interest, soul satisfaction. It just wasn't considered. You went to work, you did a job, you earned the money to support your family. So it's only in recent times, I think. As we become more enlightened as people and also in Australia, we are so incredibly lucky. We are definitely the luckiest country on earth. We have so many opportunities here. It's more and more possible, but it's not possible for everyone. And all my life, I just really wanted to do creative things and I tried and I failed. The only thing that could keep the bread and butter you know, going was my law work and everything else was, was on the side. And, but I look back, you know, and looking back, retrospect is absolutely wonderful because you can then create a story about what's gone before and make sense of it. And that helps. When I was in, you know, the depths of really difficult law cases and burning the midnight oil in my twenties and thirties. And well, actually up until fairly recently, I've had times where I just, my soul has been sucked dry. And, but, I I will I'll probably spend my whole life doing creative things on the side and um 
I suppose being being glad for I've had to teach myself to be really glad for what laws offered me because it's a norm it's an enormous privilege to be able to go to university as a girl and get an education and a degree and to go out and practice law that was not available to my grandmother it wasn't even available to my mother so I I know that I have so much to be grateful for and really appreciative of and that's also very important and it's given me opportunities to travel the world and do things I may not ever have been able to do had I just been a writer or a singer and dancer. I think there's a real binary aspect to it that we think you either have a job and that is where you get all your joy from and it's your mission in life and your purpose and like you know that's the ultimate goal or on the other end of the other flip side is that you've got this job that is just not what you want to do or who you want to be and it's just terrible and it destroys your life. But I think there's there's some more middle ground in there that mm. I just remember asking my mum when I was younger, being like, oh, I feel so bad for like, I think it was like checkout chicks or something. So I was like, you know, imagine being a full-time checkout chick and like that's your career. Like, And mum's like, yeah, maybe like standing there all day checking out groceries isn't what sets their soul on fire. But maybe their passion is because um, I gr- rode horses growing up. They're like maybe that money that they earn allows them to go and compete dressage on the weekends, and that's where they get their joy from. Or like, mm. so I think this as we become more, as you said, enlightened um, and have more and more of an existential crisis as a Western society, particularly. Yeah, the idea of decoupling um, the joy, like you know, life's joy and a career. Yeah, and because I feel like. They weren't uh, connected, like you said, for a long time. And then in recent years, they have been very connected. So the idea of, yeah, anyway, that's just a train of thought I had as I heard you talking because I was like, oh, it just it, like on the one hand, I'm like, oh, it sucks to hear that you're like, oh, your job didn't set your soul on fire. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a real shame. And I think on some level it is, but it's probably also maybe not as bad as we may think it. No, because it gave you me. You still had a yeah. full life. Like you I had still- a, yes, I had a hugely full life. It gave me. It, look, it. Um, first of all, it trained my brain. I think the best thing about an education is that it teaches you to look beyond your own horizons and think. And law does that in every way. It also teaches you to understand that everything is a shade of grey. There's no such thing as black and white. Binary positions don't exist in reality. And then it's about looking at the evidence and the logic behind arguments rather than just purely rage or emotion or the other sort of the more base emotions that drive people. So you learn how to think differently and hopefully in my case I it improved my thinking and it gave me these incredible opportunities to travel the world and then later write about them and I did get to help a lot of people and I worked so hard because I was trained to work hard and so if you work really hard um, even if you're not the best or even if you're struggling with what you do you are giving your best to somebody who's come to you because they need help and that that is a very gratifying thing and if you win for them even better or you you settle some sort of outcome so they don't have to spend years in court that's a good outcome and so you so a lot of what I did I felt that I was doing good not all the time um, not every case makes you feel like that but those were the kinds of things that I kept looking at to keep me going because I I had to find ways to to keep me going in that world. Speaking of incredible opportunities, 
your first job out of law school was in the area of criminal law and it was on working on one of the most infamous cases in Australia. I'm just going to hand over to you now and let you give us, I guess, a bit of a background about the the original incident and case, which I know everyone will have heard of, but just in case we've got some young listeners maybe or some in- international listeners, and then the part that you worked on, which kind of, you know, wasn't the initial case, but one mm. of the, um, yeah, you can explain it for us. So this was the Chamberlain Inquiry. Um, when I finished law school, I was desperate to come back to the Territory because I'd had five years at boarding school and five years at law school and I wanted to come back and so I you know, applied everywhere and I got offered a role with Crown Prosecutions in Darwin. So I grabbed it. It was my chance to come back to the Territory. Not Alice, but Darwin was still the Territory. And so I was there. I'd barely been there maybe a month and I was just learning how to be a baby prosecutor not really knowing what I was going to do in law. Um, and the Chamberlain inquiry was set up. Now, Lindy Chamberlain had been um, accused, as as most people know, along with Michael Chamberlain, ac- accused and convicted of the murder of baby Azaria at Ayers Rock back in the earlier, I think, gosh, I should remember the year, 82, 83, something like that. Um, they'd appealed all the way to the High Court. All their appeals were quashed basically on, on the basis of um, – there being no erroneous or flawed evidence that could be brought to light. Um, a tourist fell off Ayers Rock. This poor guy died, but it was an extraordinary twist of um, events because when they found his body next to it was the matinee jacket that Lindy Chamberlain always said Baby Azari was wearing. And they'd never found it. They didn't believe it. When they found that, there near the base of the rock. It was a new piece of evidence. It was consistent with what Lindy had said. Um, immediately they had to let Lindy out of jail. She'd been there for three and a half years or something. Uh, and so immediately as well, uh, the Territory had to set up an inquiry into the convictions and that's what it was called. It was, it was actually very well done. They got Trevor Morling QC, who was one of the top barristers in New South Wales to preside uh, and then what they did was got the Crown that had prosecuted to to come back and then Lindy was given the chance to um, basically attack her convictions. So this time the Crown was on the back foot. They were effectively playing the role of the defendant and I was brought into that um, because the, the people, the lawyers, I should say, that the, the – um, Crown Prosecutor and the barristers who'd been involved in, first of all, the coronial inquests and then the trials and the appeals were completely burnt out by it and they wanted fresh blood. Who better than some young enthusiastic, you know, young things fresh out of, out of law school? So I got dragged into it and was given the, um, very important title of Junior Instructing Solicitor for the Crown. Anyhow, what that meant was 18 months of non-stop 24-7 travel um, between Darwin, The Rock, Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide as the inquiry went and took evidence again from all the original witnesses and re-examined that evidence. What became clear over time was that Lindy had been erroneously convicted. She'd been convicted 
essentially on two bases. The first being the jury just didn't believe her. It was said that her behaviour was inconsistent with that of a grieving mother. That was the argument that was run. And Lindy was a strange woman and she was different and she didn't cry and she didn't act like everyone else thought she should have acted and um, the jury did not believe her. Secondly, and, and I should say, it was the first trial by media. It wouldn't happen now. It doesn't happen now. It can't. But that media was so influenced and affected by all the rumours and the innuendo that went around the Chamberlains, the publicity around it, the media. They were by no means um, an independent thinking jury. They had had all these years of um, being exposed to the case and all the rumours. The second um, erroneous basis that was really damning was that the forensic evidence was flawed. And we discovered as we went along that um, the evidence that had been relied upon as blood in the car was actually paint stripper. Now, this took and, – and there were so many other aspects of the inquiry and it really was a 24-7 process and we had these amazing barristers on either side and a huge team and we travelled and I was in charge of all the logistics and basic dog's body for the Crown – um, but I, I, I was in charge also of an office of younger lawyers under me and admin. So it was also a huge learning curve. The media were embedded. I'd never experienced anything like it. It was extraordinary. And the, there were media who were pro and um, against Lindy. And so there were different camps of media and they all mixed and went one between the other. And um, it was also, it, it was a very pressured, pressured environment. The the Free Lindy campaign was enormous, but the prejudice against Lindy and the view, especially of the Northern Territory Police that had initiated um, the in, the original investigation, well, you know, it was they were just so hostile. So it was a very divided camp. So I observed all of this. Now I went in as a young lawyer, completely loyal to the territory. And if this is what the Crown had done, had gone all the way to the High Court, all the appeals were lost. Clearly, Lindy was guilty. You know, I was, I had not exercised any independent thought at all. And perhaps that was the main thing the case taught me or the inquiry taught me was the importance of suspending judgment and prejudice and listening to the howls of the mob, but actually looking at the evidence and prosecuting that evidence properly. And of course, when it when they discovered that um, the forensic evidence was flawed, the case completely unravelled. The crown were in disarray. It was, in Bush terms, um, a big shame job, a big shame job. And at the end of the eighteen months, I was so exhausted because I just worked like a navvy the whole time, and we'd been travelling, living out of suitcase. So it was also very exciting, and I met so many interesting people. Um. But by the end, I was really done in and I was also done with crime because I'd seen, I'd seen the worst of it. Now, Lindy, she, so I sat from you to me away from Lindy every day for those 18 months in court. And how far are we apart? Two meters? Barely. Barely. I don't think we'd, we'd, um, mm. qualify for social distancing. No. <laughs> so we sat. You, you know, I was next to her at the bar table pretty much and I observed her for all that time. Yes, she was she was strange. She was not – but she'd been in jail for three years as well and 
Her story had never changed and there was never a motive and there was never a body found. And you look back and you think it was, it was like a lynching. And I, I couldn't particularly warm to Lindy, but does that make her guilty? No. But the jury had originally thought, um, this, this woman just is, you know, that the rumors were flying that she was protecting her children if she hadn't done it or she'd done it and they put the body in the boot. That's why they left Ezra quickly and chucked the body up. But there was no rational basis for that. And looking back at all the investigation, the Territory Police had, they, they had, they had their set against her from the outset. And so I got to observe that and I saw a miscarriage of justice at the highest level. And I was not proud of my own, you know, role in that. I'd gone into it completely loyal to the Crown, completely thinking, well, you know, all these appeals, of course, of course she's guilty. Yet I knew perfectly well from growing up in the bush that dingoes could come into the camp and take anything. I'd seen them, I'd observed them all my growing up life. Why wouldn't have they been able to do that with a baby? They could have easily. But my judgment was flawed and it wasn't until we started seeing the evidence being unpicked that I realized the importance of independent thought and how, and saw how quick we are as human beings to judge and to pronounce guilty. So it was an incredibly growthful time for me in that sense. And um, it was also exhausting, but it was also amazing. You know, from a, per- a personal and selfish perspective, I also had a ball because we were all traveling together, working together. We had these amazing barristers who were so generous. We'd have dinners, there'd be wine, you know, we'd get together and have parties with the media. I met all these journalists who I longed to be like. And so I, I personally and very selfishly got to also have an incredible time. Um, most of it seemed more incredible in retrospect than at the time because mostly I was so exhausted because it was just such a big job. Anyhow, that's a very long answer to your question, but it was um, it was an amazing opportunity. I, I learned a lot and it really put me off crime. When do you think you started to shift your position with regards to Lindy's innocence or guilt and whether or not a miscarriage of justice had occurred like because this is an 18-month process and Mm. I'm just hearing you say like how it may sound um I don't know but that you had a you're having a ball all the time as well but I can imagine that if you're there and you're thinking hey I'm I'm on the good guy side Mm. I'm I'm fighting the good fight I'm trying to you know do this stuff that it, that is how you'd be able to, you know, all these other things be like, yeah, this is a great thing, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm the good guy fighting, fighting the bad guys. Yeah, and, yeah. and at the same time, I get to do all these extra like cool travel things yeah. and dinners and meet these people. Whereas I think if you'd come in from day one being like, this is cooked, like this should never have happened. I can't believe like we're, you know, I don't agree with what we're doing. I don't think you would have looked at all those other experiences as like such a highlight reel. Like, I don't think I could have done the job actually. Mm-hmm. And I think the Crown and the team of barristers and solicitors who were brilliant, absolutely brilliant, I don't think they could have done the job either if they hadn't believed in the Crown's case. Like everyone genuinely believed in it. Nobody at that time when it started thought there'd been a miscarriage of justice. So I, I know that, you know, there Barristers have a code. They have to take that. Their code is we're like a taxi. We we have to take 
you know, we're the next cab on the rank. Whoever comes along, good or bad, we have to take them. We don't have the right to judge them whether we think they're guilty or innocent. So in a sense, that was part, I suppose, of how the barristers framed it. But to live and work together so intensely for 18 months, you you, you have to believe in what you're doing or you you just wouldn't do it. So as to when, I don't know, I think it was as the evidence started changing. Now, this evidence was incredibly complicated. They had experts flown in from the UK and the States to examine the matinee jacket to compare dingo bite marks to scissor cuts. They talked to all the witnesses again. They did like thousands of hours over the transcript of the um, um, like the, the sand around Ayers Rock and all the footprints in it and dog prints. I, I think perhaps as the evidence just became clearer and clearer that um, that it just wasn't sufficiently compelling. But it wasn't at the start. It wasn't even at the middle. It was probably, you know, to, towards the, ev- the end, particularly when the forens- once the forensic evidence was shot down, then we were in absolute dire straits. But the interesting thing, of course, in criminal law, it's not even whether you're innocent or you're guilty at law. It's whether you, as the Crown, can prove that the accused is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. That's the test. And so that was you know, what they were looking at. Um, and so it wasn't even really about Lindy's innocence. It was um, did these convictions meet the beyond reasonable doubt test and then clearly they didn't. So it was probably about three-quarters way through, which was a good thing because if it had been earlier, um, I don't think I could have kept going although I had this fantastic team and I was so young. And also when, I mean, I was 21, 22. How old was I? No, I was a bit older than that. Maybe I was 24. But what do you know at 24? Not much. Why well, I didn't. And <laughs> not much of the outside world. If anybody out there is 24, it's like, I know a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is our message to you today. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> I'm, I can only speak for myself. I'm sure there are lots of others out there who are very wise and clever. Oh, I think I back wasn't. to things I said and did at those ages, like, and I got given platforms and I was like, who gave me a bloody microphone? Like, <laughs> nobody should. I mean, they're probably thinking that about me now. All these years later, who still gave her a microphone? Me. I gave myself this microphone. Anyway. You mentioned just before that by the time this case was over, you were sort of done with criminal law, like Mm. that was it. Yeah. So what was next for you then? Uh, Well, luckily I was based in Darwin and so I had these great um, friends by then in Darwin in law who worked in law firms um, in civil litigation basically or civil work. So civil work is anything that's not criminal So it's the day-to-day affairs of contracts and business and compensation claims and, you know, anything that's not criminal. And so um, some friends persuaded me to come and work with them in their law firm. And so I did. I had to come back to Central Australia and do a stint back here to recover after Chamberlain. Um, And then I went back to Darwin and started work in um, civil, what was civ- we call civil lit, civil litigation. So I did all the civil work that goes to court, and that also includes family law and um, any any kind of law that um, is a dispute that ends up in court that's not criminal. So, because the Chamberlain inquiry was your first job out of law school, and that went for eighteen months, yeah. and not to rub salt in the wounds, but 
and you weren't the lead on this case, but your team, you lost. So yeah, first, we lost. We lost badly, completely, yeah. unequivocally, one hundred and fifty percent loss. So your first job was not only a massive one, but you also lost the case. Yeah, or your team did. Sorry, yeah, it wasn't just you. How long did you have to wait after you made the switch to civil rather than criminal to have a win? To actually have that experience ah, of having a win—that's a good question. Um, well, actually, luckily, not long. It's a very embarrassing. I remember I started in this job and I had my first case. Oh my goodness, it was a DUI case. It was my absolute first before court, and so I met the husband, and he was just mortified. He'd been caught over the limit. His wife was sick. He'd gone out to get something, but he'd had a few beers at home first, and. So he pleaded guilty and I went down to court and the police prosecutor said, um, your worship, um, this is the, um, the, the defendant in this matter. It's a guilty plea. And so then I stood up to uh, give what they call the plea in mitigation or submissions in mitigation. So I got up and <laughs> you know, normally this would be a, a quick, a quick event, but I got up and I was so heartfelt and passionate. And I was talking about how this man loved his wife and how he'd laid the table so beautifully for dinner before he went out. I, I remember how long it went on. The whole courtroom was just going, is this ever going to finish? The magistrate's just looking at me and I had no idea of reading a courtroom at all. So I'm going on and on. Yes, your worship. And so he's completely um, mortified and seeks your indulgence. <laughs> Anyhow, the magistrate must have felt sorry for me. So um, the the guy had pleaded guilty, but on the basis of my extensive and heartfelt submissions, <coughs> he didn't have a conviction record and he just got a small fine. So that was only about a month afterwards. All right. So next time, or I should say the first time, I ever get a speeding fine, I'll call you and mm. you can come into court with me. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, what's that word? Like uh, when you don't accept it? Oh, when you like when, when you it, deny, yeah, and then you have to go to court rather than yeah, just pay you, the fine. Yeah, you, yeah, you plead not guilty. Yeah, <laughs> and this afterwards, I I didn't realize, of course, about how long I'd gone on in this submission. But I went out, and the old man had tears in his eyes. We had a big hug, very unprofessional, but I'm a hugger. So off he went, and two of the other lawyers I knew came past me and said, "Laid the table for dinner so beautifully." And they just shook their heads and laughed and walked off. And that's when I realised oh, <laughs> it was perhaps the most pathetic submission ever, but it was my first win and I was very proud. You've had a, a fairly long career in law since then, We 35 years-ish we worked out yeah. just before. Mm. What has that experience been like? I know we touched on already about how it's not necessarily the job or the career that fills your soul and fills mm. those buckets, mm. but other aspects of it. Um, like you said, it, it did allow you to do things you wanted to do, I suppose, financially. But yeah. in terms of a career, what has it been like for you? Well, it's been very interesting because I've always followed the path less travelled, not even intentionally, but I knew that I just couldn't, 
I couldn't be a lawyer who started in a job and stayed in that job forever, even though that's what everyone around me did. So my career has been one of stop and start, stop and start. I'd try something. I'd work really, really hard. I'd invariably burn out, have to stop, have a break, go and travel, and then come back and start again in something different. But I've done years of civil litigation. Um, what I think really changed for me was when I went to Prague, and came back. Um, at that time, um, native title was just really kicking off around Australia. And I knew a lot, I'd done a lot of land rights work in the territory and nobody knew anything about native title. They didn't understand the law because it was new. They didn't understand how to deal with Aboriginal groups or mining groups or, um, cattle station or any kind of land stakeholders, local councils. But I'd done land rights for years. So I was, very, very experienced in that field. And so I ended up through a friend of a friend going to WA and I took on a contract for what was WMC back then. They were a mining company. And I went in to do a review for them of all their different leases to identify where native title would impact it and what they'd need to do. So it was, it was a review role, but it was very, very interesting. And that led me to staying in WA then for 20 odd years off and on where I end up setting up my own consultancy and working in the corporate world. So I went from civil litigation into that corporate world. But um, from the perspective of a consultant where I'd go out and I'd represent different stakeholders according to what they needed and travelled all around the West, also did some work back in the Territory in South Australia with it. And then my last role was I was headhunted um, for an in-house general counsel role of a small mining company in WA where they needed to build a team. And in fact, the 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 company was Wright Prospecting, um, which was the partner of Hancock Prospecting, Gina Reinhardt's father, Lang Hancock and Peter Wright, the father of the company I worked for, had been colleagues for decades and they built well, – they they explored and identified um, mining tenements together, which they then sold. As a result, the families the, – the two old men had died, um, but the royalty flows were coming in and there were a most enormous number of contractual disputes um, because Hancock prospecting – um, we said had um, stolen a number of those property rights and royalty rights. So my role there was back a hundred percent litigation, but management of the litigation. It was like, a, in a sense, it took me all the way back to Chamberlain again. And then we had cases all around Australia, and I managed a team. I built a team internally, and then we had a team of about 35 external lawyers. So it reminded me a lot in so many ways of Chamberlain, where we were all pretty much embedded together, working together, traveling together. Uh, And that was a phenomenal role um, and very high pressured. Um, Our board had members from Macquarie Bank and and the like. like. It was... It was the hardest job I have ever done and I learned even more in that. And also, but the great thing was I got a lot of young women lawyers in who had hit the glass ceiling in the top tier law firms they were in. They were all top tier law firm lawyers. They were smart as paint, but they were really disillusioned with private practice in the big corporate world and were looking 
for something else. And so I built a team with many of those young women, which was just, it felt incredibly satisfying to do. So that's sort of how the career went, criminal, civil litigation, um, consultancy, uh, work across all all aspects of native title, heritage, land rights, just land and property issues, and then in-house general counsel managing this major litigation around royalties. It sounds like you just had this incredible career and you were just smashing goals, moving up the ladder, um, you know, having all these amazing or taking advantage of all these amazing opportunities. But you also just mentioned something about the, uh, hiring young women lawyers and the glass ceiling. Mm. I wonder mm. though, did you ever hit a glass ceiling as well? Because it kind of sounds like you didn't because you just you got to do this and this and then you kind of worked your way up to the point where you were kind of like the boss lady pulling together a team. Um, yeah, but did you have any experiences, I suppose, with the glass ceiling? Uh, glass ceiling was ever-present wherever I went. Um, the, the legal profession is so hierarchical, so male-dominated, so misogynistic back when I started in the 80s. Oh, I'll tell you a story of when I'd started in law in Darwin. Um, all... All the lawyers in in prosecutions, in the prosecution team, there were maybe 20 of them and the, their police mates, they all went to lunch every Friday. And one day I said, why don't you ever take me? <laughs> I just asked sort of, I don't know, innocently and they said, oh, you, you can't come with us. And I said, well, why not? And they said, all right, all right, we'll take you next time. And so they took me to their Friday luncheon spot, which was a topless bar um, where all the waitresses – yeah, there's breasts in the soup. It's, it was just – and everybody was smoking and drinking and that was the world. And so they, they took me along sort of patting me on the head. Well, if you want to taste what life is like being a male lawyer, here you are, join us and this is what involves. So naturally I wasn't invited again I didn't go again. But that that was the norm. I was always on the outside it wasn't just me. All the all the young female lawyers were struggling to make their mark in in an industry like all those professional industries that were set up by men for men centuries ago. And um, for women, you, I had to, I had to learn. Well, I tell you what, I was really lucky. I was so lucky. I'd grown up on a cattle station with men, so I knew. I wouldn't profess to say I knew how men think, but I had a pretty good idea of how men thought and what they liked and didn't like. And the last thing they wanted or liked was some emotional um, girl around them. So I had to. I learned very quickly to hide my emotions, hide hide my creativity, hide the person that I really was in the early years, especially, and just tried to sort of be this, um, you know, just can do anything, don't care kind of girl that could sort of buddy up with these blokes, um, because they wouldn't treat me seriously as a lawyer, but maybe if they treated me seriously as a sort of, I don't know, pal. It was a very confusing um, a time and mum would say that um, whenever I was at work, I played this role and then I'd come home and I'd take that hat off and I'd revert to being me. So I played a role to survive and then when I realised I could never ever think or be or play like those blokes because 
I just didn't have it in me. I eventually realized it wouldn't be possible. Then I started doing what a lot of women do, and that's look to how they can do law differently. And so that led me particularly um, into working as a consultant where I could uh, be in charge of my own business. Now, I was still having to work with, I mean, the mining industry is completely male-dominated as well. So I was still working with men, men, um, men, and lots of wonderful men and lots of men really supportive. And along the way, I should say, I've had fantastic mentors who have helped, but I've never, ever been um, one of the gang, one of them. I've always known I've been on the outside. So I'm very, very small to start with. And all you imagine trying to have your voice heard in a room full of big suited men, um, laws full of ego and testosterone, and I really struggled. So I went outside. And then when I got this role as um, in-house general counsel, that was phenomenal. But I got it because of my background. They didn't want what was called then the St. George's Terrace, you know, top lawyer. They didn't want that. They wanted somebody who had um, a bush background and I had an outback background. I came from a small family business on the land. I was a lawyer and I'd worked in WA for decades. So that's what got me into that role. Now when I got into it, it's you know that the board and the makeup were still of course very male orientated, but um there were some wonderful women in the family, the right family who supported me. Um Leone in particular, I've always feel so grateful for her. She was on the board. And then I set about giving these other women chances because it was actually not easy to hire young men to come and work for a woman in an in-house role. They wanted to be out, um, you know, in the big law firms making their name. But the women were really interested because it offered flexibility and fantastic work. So, gosh, that's another rambling answer, isn't it? No, it's just making me think. So, by the time you got to this general counsel role, yeah, did you feel like you were saying earlier about wearing the two hats? Did yeah. you feel like you were wearing any sort of a hat at any point in time? Like, was it just that you were wearing it less, less often, or was the hat completely gone? No, the hat wasn't completely gone, but it was the less it had ever been. So, I had, you know, I definitely, you know, played the role, put on the mask in criminal law and civil litigation and for a lot of the time in my consultancy because I was out dealing with mining companies and men and I knew what they were looking for and I delivered that and then I'd go home and want to be creative. Um, but with with the general counsel role, that's the closest I've come to actually being myself in a role. It's just made me think I've got this quote saved on my phone. I've just pulled it up and it goes – you can only wear two faces to the world for so long before you forget which one is the real one. Mm. And so I was just curious as to whether or not you ever wondered or worried, you know, when you're being someone else, if that was actually going to become, I suppose, a bit of a permanent change or do you think there's some small part of that that is still with you here today? Like Because when you wear a mask for so long, it, yeah, like like in that quote, you you might forget what's yeah. what is and what isn't. I mean, you said hat, I say mask, but you know, yeah, tomato, same, tomato, same same diff. Well, again, luckily, I think because of my bush upbringing, I was like that upbringing made me so real. You have to be real in the bush. 
So I think that was always going to dominate. I was never worried. My concern was I could never wear the mask effectively enough or I couldn't wear the hat effectively enough that people would see through me. I was forever thinking, you know, the imposter syndrome. People will realise actually Tanya doesn't know what she's doing. She's playing a role. She actually hasn't the faintest idea. So, no, that was never – it was almost the other way around that I'd never be able to play the role well enough. But I – it's now second nature. So if I go into a business setting, I can adopt that um, position or that role or that mask immediately because I know what's required and it's helpful. And you look at um, long-term lawyers and doctors and accountants and people who are in a professional role assisting others, it's also a self-protection mechanism. So over the years they develop that mask for their own survival. So I can still do it in a flash but um, – the great thing about um, finally being able to write my books and still doing law on the side is that for the first time in my life, I have the greatest balance. I am far more myself now than I, – I, I'm. maybe it's because I'm older. I just now feel much freer to be myself. I don't feel like I have to prove to anyone – anymore. I'm not desperately trying to climb up the corporate ladder, which I never actually tried to because I couldn't do it. So I'd jump off it and try something else. Well, that's a pretty good segue into the next thing I want to ask you about. And that's the transition from being a lawyer to being an author, which I suppose as you've just kind of indicated, isn't a 100% transition. Hmm. It's sort of bringing in the writing side of things rather than, you know, quitting law and just being an author. Yeah. When did you start to write your first book? I started in 2003. I started Alistair Prague in 2003, um, but I only wrote on the side because I I had my consultancy and I was working, travelling all over WA at the time. Um, but I started doing courses and started writing notes and started deciphering all my diaries. And that, that was the f- time I just felt I, I need to write this story. And there were lots of reasons I needed to, but in that year or the year before, um, my great love, my Czech love had died. And I just thought I have to write his story and the story of the Czechs I'd known. It suddenly became so compelling that it overrode all the previous objections I'd had for all the decades before that um, writing was just something frivolous and on the side. Um, and so I, it was still on the side, but I started. May I ask how old you were at the time? Yes. Yeah, so um, I was 41. Okay. And 41. so and so your Czech love, so this is a, a former partner. Yes. But not, not a current partner no. at the time. No. That had passed away and that's – I suppose is that a bit of the watershed moment that yeah. really spurred it on? It was completely. I mean, he hadn't, we hadn't been together for many, many years, but he was so important to me in so many ways. And when he died, I, it, it was like he came and sat on my shoulder and he said, you need to tell the story of the checks. You need to tell the story of the people that you met. And then I thought, I need to tell his story as well. And so it was a, comp- Pulsion. It 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 was something that I knew I had to do from deep inside. It was there was no turning back. 
why do you think it took you so long? Not that 41 is old, but it is a little further on in life. Yeah. <laughs> particularly since you'd been so enthralled and obsessed with books and storybooks yeah. since you were a young child. I know you said like that's that's the event that kind of ha- like you know spurred it on at that point in time. But why do you think you'd not picked up a pen or opened a laptop or you know mm. whatever grabbed out the old typewriter? We barely had laptops. The then. old uh, the old just had them ink and quill, um, <laughs> <laughs> and parchment paper, and started writing before that point in your life. I'd written. Um, Constantly, I'd never stopped writing. I had so many diaries. I had letters. I had albums full of, you know, stories. Um, report. I documented everything that had happened in my life. So I wrote and wrote and wrote, but I didn't do anything with it because I, I just had this fear that the sky would fall in Henny Penny. Do you remember that childhood? Yes, poem? I have. Yes. I still have a copy of the book at home. Do you? So that was in my. The sky will fall in Henny Penny if I do something as frivolous and self-indulgent as follow my heart and write. It always had to be about work. You know, you grow up on a cattle station and it's just work. Anything else, and and also not just a cattle station, but families, parents whose families had lived through the depression and the war years, and there was no time for self-pity or to do the kind of thing you wanted to do or wasting time. It was all about work, head down work. And that's what drove me all through my career. And to have done something on the side like writing just felt too self-indulgent. Somehow I managed to justify the singing and all the theatre I did, but I think that's just because that was an hour on Sunday or an hour after work. It didn't affect work time. It didn't affect work and it was so different. Something about writing was very similar to work because work involved writing, but it was a different side of my head, brain space. So I can't remember left or right, which is the creative, which is the analytical, but I had got very stuck in the analytical and I didn't know how to go back into the creative and I didn't think I could. I I mean, I wrote all these diaries and journals, but that's different to writing a book. So I had self-doubt um, I'd actually, my brain neural pathways had stopped writing creatively a long time ago and I didn't know how to do it again. And then 30, it just, it felt like the sky would fall in. It felt, it almost felt like a sin because it was finally going back to what I really wanted to, to do. And that was be a foreign correspondent and tell stories of people I'd met from the other side of the world. I could be completely off the mark here, but when you're saying, you know, the difference between um, allowing yourself to be creative with the singing and dancing and acting but writing the book that was different, is that also because when you're writing and particularly writing stories like yours, the memoirs, memoirs yeah, yeah, they're about real people and so you're yes. writing about people perhaps with or without their permission or their blessing mm. or there's another layer there. Like it's you can't write a memoir of your life without – you can't write a story about you without talking about other people and I suppose that's what can be – I imagine must be tricky to balance oh, that. That's such an insightful question, Steph. It really is because I'd never thought about it before but performance – um, singing on a stage is theatre. It's acting, and it's just you, and like, it's just me. Unless you played some kind of crazy role that your parents would be like, "Oh my god, she's doing the Rocky Horror Picture <laughs> yeah. Show! How dare she!" Like, 
but other, you know. I'm just a sweet transvestite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's true. It's, it's theatre. It, you're on the stage. It's for a couple of hours. It's just performance. You're acting and then you go off and that's it. There's, it, it's lost forever. That moment has gone. But when you write and you write a memoir, you're writing about people, you know, you're writing about yourself. And once you put something in print, it's, not lost forever, it's there forever. So it's very insightful. That might have been one of the reasons I also found it so hard to start because I didn't want to write about myself. In fact, the memoirs were not meant to be memoirs. I wanted to write a story about the Czechs and about Carl. I didn't want to put myself in it. Um, it was only – it took me 15 years to write this damn thing for so many reasons, but one was that – it took me that long to realise, mostly with the advice of good teachers, that I needed to put myself in it for people to connect to it. So I, I, I never wanted to put myself into. It. I didn't even know how I'd describe myself. Like, how do you? It's a very, especially if you've played a lot of different roles. Like, who am I? Dun, dun, dun. That's very weird. <laughs> yeah. Am I the the savior in this story? Am I the villain? Am I? Yeah. Who am I? I also know when we were talking off air, so just before we started recording, you mentioned uh, when we were talking about, you know, why did it take you so long to start writing? And you mentioned you also had to do a bit of work on yourself mm. to get to that point as well. And I was wondering if you'd be happy to chat about that. Yeah, um, I had to do – well, I'm really embarrassed to say it, I suppose, but I had to do a lot of therapy I, I had this story that wanted to be written and I didn't know how to write it and I couldn't write it. And mostly I couldn't write it because my head kept telling me the sky will fall in henny penny. I, it was this impenetrable barrier in front of me. Um, but I was living at the time in Margaret River because Steve, my wonderful husband, was in the wine industry and I was driving up and down to Perth and traveling around the state for work but Margaret River was full of enormously creative people so I got into this enormously creative writing group and there, one of the people there was this enormously creative therapist and so I spent um, a lot of time talking with her about all the voices in my head that said I couldn't and shouldn't and I wasn't good enough and I didn't deserve and I couldn't have and you know, all the negative stuff we pick up uh, and so she challenged that and she said, well, why is that so? And she made me answer over and over again until I started, I suppose, creating a new neural pathway in my brain where actually I, I can do this, I am allowed to do this. It sounds really stupid, but, you know, I just, my, my, my family, particularly my father, thought anything creative was, he never said the devil's work, but it was, it, it, it was indulgent. It was self-indulgent. It, it was very self-indulgent when there was just work to be done. And he was a very creative man, a beautiful singer, an amazing sportsman, and he shut all that down for duty. And so that's the legacy he passed on to his kids, no, not particularly knowing that, but um, it meant I had all these messages in my head that said I – wasn't allowed to do it. And so it took a long time to give myself permission to do it. But this amazing uh, woman in Margaret River really helped me. And then what that did was made me think, well, I'll do other courses and I'll work with other mentors. But it still took a long time because, oh, God, it was like I was 
was like hitting my head against a brick wall. I just thought, I'm so hopeless, I can't do this. And every time I thought that, you know, the story would come and tap me on the shoulder and say, get back to work. So the story in a way healed me. It healed those parts of me that said it was wrong for me to do what I'd always wanted to do, which was to be that foreign correspondent and go around the world and write people's stories. And writing Alistair Prague was essentially that for me. What I'm hearing is that it was a cathartic process for you. Is that the right way to describe it? Um, Cathartic maybe by the end, fairly bloody throughout. (laughs) (laughs) It was very – it was, I mean, honestly, I was working full-time. I was travelling and trying to be in my analytical brain and then I'd come back and look at this blank page and try and – or blank screen and try and find my creative side and um, it – oh. It was the slowest process. I think I was the slowest student. I think I'd lost so much of my creativity because I'd been too scared to use it that it took just a long, long time to get it back. And some people can do it quickly and can do it overnight. And I was surrounded by people who just did it naturally and easily and I was in awe. But for me, it was it was a long, um, torturous journey. Oh. I also – just feel like I should make note, like a special mention that um, with your father and his perspective and, and the way he approached it or, or, and, and life, it really is just a sign of the times. Absolutely. Like it's, uh, not like he was just, I know from previous conversations with you, it's not like he was a, I mean, well, he was a tough man, but not, you know, it's it's not coming from a place of like, I don't know, like a bad place. It is that is just of that generation. Yeah. That is just what was the norm and what was. Yeah. And now I think it's like such. It's been such a big shift in such a short period of time that back then it was like, and you know, and our, and our grandparents' um, generation stuff like you just yes. work to survive and you work and be bloody grateful to have a job. Absolutely. And now we're in like a perpetual existential crisis yes. because we've got every all our needs are met, but then. Because all our needs are met, like our security Who am and comfort. I? What should I be yeah, doing? Why am I doing? What am I doing here? What's my yeah. problem? And it's like the complete opposite. Mm, um, mm. And instead of being like so grateful for a job, we're like, mm, I don't really know if I want that job. I'm just gonna um, go and send. Anyway, don't get me started yeah. on that. <laughs> but it's true. My father came out of um, the end of the world, or he was born. Both my parents were born before the start of World War Two. They were little during it, but. Their parents had lived through the previous World War, the Depression era. They lived on the land. They had no money as a child. Dad was out killing kangaroos to um, try and sell their skins to make money. They had ration tickets for, I don't know, 15, 20 years after the war for butter and um, milk and there were no such things as chocolate or anything we'd take for granted. So it wasn't just the war years, it was what followed. And dad was a very frugal, hardworking man and he, you know, very seriously adopted the mantle of his parents and that was, you know, work is a, life is about work yeah. and being grateful for work and that's it. Security is not a thing. Like he doesn't know when something is next going to happen and he needs yeah. to be able to, support, you know, provide for his family, whereas 
Yeah, we're just so lucky today. It's it's a real privilege to be born in this time. It absolutely is. And also he worked on the land and lived his life on the land because that was his training. And life on the land is so precarious because you're in the hands of drought and flooding rains and never knowing what, if any, you might get or when. So nature controls the land and you have to work within that to survive. It's an incredibly perilous existence for people on the land. You know, I think actually how brave are people who live on the land, especially in outback Australia. Yeah, he's um Yeah, he he pretty much would have like lived his life at the whim of Mother Nature. So yeah. I'm just yeah. So he was all about being careful and being smart and responsible and not putting yourself in a position where you could end up not getting work and therefore not being able to put food on the table. Mm. And for him, any kind of creative world led to that very precarious, unpredictable likelihood and basically your life's ruined then. Yeah, So I had to unpick all of that to believe, nonetheless, despite that, I'm still entitled to write this book. Now, another thing or thought that I have, which again could be completely off track and I can just be drawing my own conclusions and, and seeing what I want to see. What do they call it? Confirmation bias or something. But Yeah. yeah. Um, good. Thinking about why, you know, I, I just find it very interesting that you started writing your book at the age of 41. Yes. You got married at 40. Yes. And you met your husband, Steve, at 38. Yes. And I just find that timing all very interesting that by like that you started writing this book after you sort of found your great love and settled yes. and I just feel like that that maybe was a bit of a shift there as well or am I just making stuff up no that no that is absolutely true it was like everything aligned um for the first time I'd had support and I I was with a husband who totally supported me and supported my desire to write because when I first met him I told that was told him that was my dream so right from the word go he supported me and I felt safe to do that, even though I was working. Um, and then when Carol died, um, my Czech love sick. I mean, I, we hadn't been together for a long time, but his death coincided with me feeling safe enough um, in my marriage to do the thing that I wanted to do. So it was like everything came together. But I, to be honest, if Steve hadn't been there and if I didn't have that sense of safety and somebody who had my back, would I have had the courage to do it then? That is a really good question and I don't know the answer. And it may be that I may never have. I might have gone to my grave never having had the courage to do it. I think Steve, I'm just so lucky. He's, he's the most amazing support. Now, our listeners know that I love a good love story. Yes. So, I'm going to need all the details of how <laughs> you first met and fell in love. Oh. Um, well, as I was saying, my friend in Adelaide, Jodie Carney, originally from the Territory, told me that I used to have dreadful taste in boyfriends. And I did. I had so many, so many relationships that didn't work and I'd virtually given up, but I'd gone back to Prague. 
And I was missing Prague and I met up with Carol again and I met with my old friends, but I knew my life had moved on and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I was lost again. I was about to fly back to Australia and a friend of mine who I'd worked with in Perth, because by then I'd been in WA in the mining industry for about three and a half years, he'd moved to London. He said, come and stay with me uh, on your way back to Australia. And P.S., he wrote in his email, because we were at in email Oh, what were they called? Um, what were they called? Internet cafes. Oh, yeah. Internet cafes. I was in internet cafe in Prague. He, he was, um, in one in England. He said, come and stay with me. P.S. You're going to fall in love with my flatmate. And I said, Oh God, Kevin had an even worse, um, scenario in terms of reputation and picking relationships than I did. So I didn't trust him at all. And I said, Kevin, don't even try and set me up. Anyhow, I went to stay for two days and I met Steve the first night I was there and he walked in and I looked at him and he looked at me and that was pretty much it. Really? Yeah, that was it. But I was going back to Australia and I just, I was really wary and I was pretty burnt because I just thought, oh, you know, this is hopeless and um, I'm never going to get the right guy. And I, you know, and I'm now 38 and so I was very, very wary. But almost immediately we we connected and then um, after one week, Steve told me that he loved me. Yes. And I, and I said to him, you are delusional. <laughs> Poor Steve, you'll never let me forget that. I said, how can you possibly know you don't even know me? He said, I know, but I know you at a deep level and I know you and I know that is true and it won't change. And his persistence meant that um, three months later, pretty much we um, were going to be together forever and I had to come back to Australia and he was going to come over because he was born in Australia. So he had an Australian passport, luckily. So he could come of his own volition, which was fantastic. And I'd been back in Perth about a month and um, we weren't going to ring each other because phone calls then were so expensive and he'd be in an internet cafe and I'd be doing my emails from my work, my big, heavy, you know, clunky work computer. And I said, I I don't think I can survive. <laughs> We'd only been about a month. And he just came. He came and we've been together ever since. And that was 2000 and then we got married in 2002 and we've been together ever since and I'm the luckiest girl in the world. Oh, my God. I, I love know, this story. <laughs> I know. I just – I never thought I would get so lucky. So when you were going to London, did you just say that you were only supposed to stay there for like two days? Yeah. And then so how long did you end up staying there for? <laughs> I nearly – oh, actually, it wasn't three months. It was um two months. I ended up staying for two months. <laughs> I love this. I also love – this is where my mind goes. When you said he walked into the room and, like, we locked eyes and I just knew. Yeah. Um, but in my mind, I'm like, but he hadn't opened his mouth yet. Like, what if he'd opened his mouth and sounded like a total, like, <laughs> I don't know, bogan or a pre- – I don't know, something where you were just like, oh, no, abort mission, abort mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, we locked eyes and then he spoke okay. and, and he had this um, exquisitely cultivated English accent back then because he lived so long in England. I love you like back then. I think he still yes. sounds pretty fancy yeah. now. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> His accent's changed a lot. It's become more Australian. But, yeah, it is. he's still got the English accent. It's still there. 
Oh, I just love this story so much. I know. And I I'm think so lucky. my favourite part of it is that it takes place at the age of 38. Yeah. So Very- don't give up anyone, I say. Do not give up because I had pretty much given up. But what I did, I'll tell you one thing I did. This is the power of the written word. When I was in Prague and about to come to England and despairing and thinking I'm going to be alone forever, I wrote um, a list. I sat down with a coffee overlooking the Vlotovar, this beautiful river in this beautiful cafe, and I wrote a list what I do want in a relationship and what I don't want in a relationship. And Steve ticked every box that was what I do except for the one in the relationship was I don't want a long-distance relationship. And so that's why I said, no, I'm, I'm not going into this. But he was persistent and he said, I'll come to Australia. And so he did. Oh, I know. So the the power of you know affirmations, writing it down, what you want and what you don't want. Oh, this is such a great story, such a great story. Well, I I think, yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna bask in like the warm sunlight for a minute yeah. and the taste of Tim Tams and this great love story. <laughs> yes. Great we should idea. all just take a minute to oh, – I just love it. It's so non-traditional as well. Like, yes. If I hear one more girl meets boy or girl grows up living next door to boy or some – I don't know. They're all still great stories, but it's just nice to mix it up a bit and have something a bit well, this you know, non-conforming. Oh, this could not have been more non-conforming. Brilliant. We were both the same age, neither married, neither with children. That's also extraordinary. Um, so most – you know, we'd arrived, we had plenty of our own baggage, but – we didn't come with those kind of commitments. How lucky. So I suppose where we've gotten up to in your story is we've, we've sort of discussed um, your time as a lawyer. And I love that we even had that chat pretty early on about how it wasn't necessarily a career that you chose or that you had going back that you would choose and that it's not like the one that filled your cup and kind of inspired you throughout your life, but you still made a pretty bloody good life. And that it, it took a while and it took work for you to be able to get to a point where you believed in yourself and, and uh, you said, gave yourself permission to be able to start writing your memoirs. Yeah. Um, also, you know, talking and that, and that came later in life. Well, yes. midlife, I shouldn't say very much later in life, life really. Then, then I guess for, you know, I'll use the air quotes for the norm. Yes. The same with love. Yes. And I'm a late bloomer. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why we get on so well. <laughs> um, but my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is, a flower does not compare itself to other flowers. It just blooms. Oh, God, that's perfect. Yeah, that yeah. is Flowers perfect. don't look at other flowers and go, oh, you're prettier than me. The flower just blooms and does its own thing. So, yes. Oh, that yeah. is wonderful. I'm just saying that. I as I'm looking that. at this giant, like, I don't know what you call it, a bush or a hedge or something of sunflowers. That yeah. you, are those sunflowers or daisies? They are sunflowers, yeah. a mass of sunflowers. They're, there's just a A shiny golden mob. mass, biggest mob. Biggest exactly. mob of sunflowers. Biggest mob. <laughs> and I'm just, there's this oh. little bee going through this little purple flower yeah. right now. The lobelias. Um, oh, so beautiful. Yeah. So that's made me think of that. But I suppose um, there's one more kind of shift or, or like, leap of faith or mm. courage, you know, act of courage that you've taken recently, which is what the last thing I want to talk to you about is. Oh, yes. I think, you know, where this might be going. So, you you gave you, 
after all this work and, and stuff, you know, you've given yourself permission to write your memoirs. Yes. But now, what are yes. you writing, Tanya? Ooh. So, um, I'm still working, of course, because I can't ever give up work. But having finished my three memoirs, the fourth logical memoir would have been the start of life in law. Um, but all my friends who are lawyers said to me, mm, sorry, Tanya, if you write about us, we'll have to sue you. <laughs> Because, you know, we were all very badly behaved back then when we were young and foolish and we're all now grown up and responsible and we don't want anyone to read about those stories. So I thought, all right, I'm going to put all those years of practice into fiction. My sister always says, Melissa says, nothing is wasted, Tanya, it's all grist for the mill. And I thought, right. I'm going to make all these years of working in law now work for me. So I'm writing a fiction book um, and it's about a young female lawyer in Alice Springs in the 1990s, which was me. That's really where the comparison starts and ends, although, no, she does have a family on a cattle station, but this girl is much braver and, and bolder, but it's taking all my legal training and um, everything that I observed back then and using it as grist for the mill for my story and it'll be a murder mystery. I cannot wait. <laughs> I do feel like um, I should get a preview copy. Like, I think you, know, you should, Just to write Steph. some notes and, you know, pick up any spelling errors and Yeah, stuff. I think, Steph, you might be my girl. Oh, I think so. Shit, did, this just, did that just work? And you, <laughs> I did pick up on that time when I swore, sorry. <laughs> Tanya goes to me before – you swore, and I don't think you noticed. And I can't wait to listen back to this recording and find that, and I'll probably won't even beep it out, to be honest. But considering your love of books started with fiction as a child, yes, yes. now I feel like, I know you said earlier something about coming full circle, but I feel now it's sort of more coming full circle because yes. you're writing a fiction book. And yes. Anybody who's listened to this conversation and your other ones and read your other books, like you're such a creative being and so much energy and spirit and um, I don't know, just life in you. So imagine what you're going to put into a book. Oh, oh I'm so excited. Steph, thank you. Thank you. Well, when I was a little kid, all I did was write stories, fiction stories based on all the School of the Year storybooks I had and they were almost all Enid Blyton's um, Magic Faraway Tree, Secret Seven, Famous Five, they were all kids having adventures. <gasps> I read those. And yeah. And they were all kids without parents having adventures and beating the bad guys. Like what was not to love about those stories? And so this is going to be a grown ups version. I mean, it won't be kids chasing the baddies, but it'll be this young lawyer, female lawyer chasing the baddies and, um, I, I think Enid Blyton instilled in me, as she has instilled in so many fiction writers, that, that love of the mystery. Enid Blyton and Agatha Christie using your mind what, um, sh you know, what's happening next? What's happening next? And almost always they're in, well, they're children if it's Enid Blyton or they're, Grown-ups like my female protagonist is she's just this young female lawyer out of her depth completely but winging it and determined to bring in the bad guys. So it is full circle. It's bringing all my legal training. Finally, it'll be of real use. I'll be able to 
write about it and write fiction. And then my dream, Steph, should I tell you my ultimate dream? Yes. My ultimate dream. Exclusive on the podcast, everyone. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. Then maybe one day I'll be able to write full-time. That would be the ultimate dream, to write full-time. So this is the start. So I haven't given up. I've come so much further than I thought when I started writing Alice to Prague. I could never have imagined I'd have ended up doing three memoirs. You know, one would be was like my goal. Then to think I did two and then three, and now fiction. So who knows, Steph? The sky. Hopefully, the sky's the limit, as opposed to Henny Penny trying <laughs> to make it fall in. <laughs> If anybody listening has connections to Reese Witherspoon's production company, yes. I feel like any of Tanya's memoirs or this upcoming fiction novel would be great to be made into miniseries, a movie Yay. in cinemas or any streaming service, or if any local Australian film or TV producers are listening. Yes. Just saying. There's a lot of scope here and, you know, we all love something that's based on a true story or a great fiction. So, it's just the quality of the story, and I know we've got it here. I do have a handful of kind of rapid-fire questions, I Ooh, guess. So just okay. I'll ask you the questions, um, and if you can give me some uh, just like short and sharp answers yep. uh, to finish up this episode. So what is a failure that you've experienced that really comes to mind that you thought was a failure at the time but perhaps looking back didn't turn out to be? Well, so many failures, I don't know where to begin. Perhaps I could say my overarching, underreaching, all-encompassing life failure has been a lack of self-confidence, the failure to believe that I could go and do things. But the flip side of that is in that fear, somehow I force myself to nonetheless go and do a lot of things. So having... That fear feels like a real failure, like it's held me back. There's so much more I could have done, but at the same time it made me go deep and grow deep inside to develop the courage that I needed to do the things I wanted to do. What makes you nervous? Mm. Leaving Central Australia, (laughs) that stems from boarding school. The thought of having to get on a plane and fly away and leave this beautiful landscape. Um, makes me very nervous. <laughs> who are the most influential people in your life or who have been? Mm. Well, I've had many. Mum and Dad predominantly have been an incredible formative presence in my life. Many, many mentors along the way. I have been so lucky. Some incredible um, male mentors. My number one female mentor is Dr. Erica Smythe. She's this incredible geologist in WA who's had every kind of health issue you could imagine, um, but just gone on to become one of Australia's leading um, women geologists and sitting on boards. And she is an absolute inspiration to me. And of course, Steve. Oh, bless. Hmm. Uh, if there was a book written about you <laughs> by your worst enemy, yeah, what would it be co- titled? Oh, <laughs> I just had a blank. <laughs> um, you're such a goody two shoes. Oh, that's what a girl. <laughs> I'll never forget in third year at 
boarding school said to me when I refused to jump over the back fence with everyone else because I was too scared of the consequences because I had a terrifying father and so I was so scared of breaking the rules. Anyhow, you're such goody two-shoes. Yeah, that's that's resonated. Hey, that might be a f- title of one of your future books, just saying, <laughs> or, of the, or of the next memoir. <laughs> such but goody. I look back at my life and I think, no, I have, despite that, broken out a bit every now and then. <laughs> You've stolen a grape from the supermarket. Is that what you're referring to? Well, I might have done that once. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was just one grape. Just, just one, one grape. Just one and nobody saw me and nobody was hurt in the making of that moment. <laughs> Speaking of books, and as we've mentioned quite a few times, your love of books uh, came started when you were a child and fiction yes. books you used to read. Yes. If you could meet any character, if you could bring a character to life and sit down and have a cup of tea or take them to dinner or spend a day with them, who would it be? Um. Oh my goodness! Could I have an author instead of a character? Oh, yes. Oh, because there are so many I characters. Came up with that question all by myself, don't you? And I'm that's ask a you really, next time. it's a really good question. But the author is Enid Blyton because she created so many characters. The answer really would be every single character in one of her books. But I would love to sit down with her. How did she create? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books of children having adventures. I would do anything to meet her. What would you say is your life's mission? um, Gosh, I think deep down I've always had this profound desire to make a difference in whatever I've done, to actually do some good, to bring some good. So whatever I've turned my hand to, I've tried really hard to make a difference in someone's life. That does sound very grandiose, doesn't it? But that – and I think that was instilled in me by my parents. It was, you know, sort of the do unto others um, maxim. And I've always wanted to live a life where I could try and make things better for those around me in some way. What are you curious about? Oh, everything, the world, um, life, how the universe is made up, why I can't be in 2,000 places at once doing 2,000 things that I want to do, everything, Steph. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and to finish up, I'm just going to ask you to leave us with three book recommendations. They can be for any age groups, any fiction, nonfiction, textbook, whatever, but just three books that you would recommend people put their hands on at some point in their life okay okay well like that's almost as hard as picking your favorite character but there are three standout books for me um i was going to say any ben elton book but his latest book should be mandatory reading it's called identity crisis it's bitingly satirical funny this clever take on the world that we live in and how we are so controlled by social media and it's a story and it's hilarious it's laugh out loud hilarious um with serious messages all ben elton's books do or have um the second and that's just i think recently been released i think it was released late last year 
The second one was released sometime in the early 2000s and it's one of the most profoundly important books I've ever read called Stasi Land by Anna Funda. That was another inspiration for me to write Alistair Prague and Stasi Land is about the world of the Stasi in East Germany and how they basically destroyed millions of people, not just physically but psychologically and mentally with just with their insane evilness. Is that a word, evilness? Mm. I don't think it's a word, but we can make it a word for the purpose of this discussion, Steph. Yeah. Well, I yeah, don't yeah. know what else it would be. like. Well, we could just say evil, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. But it's brilliant. It's her memoir. She goes into East Germany and interviews all these people who are affected by the Stasi under communism. And it ripples out to every single totalitarian regime and it's it's like a thriller. It's like reading a thriller, Edge of Your Seat, and it's brilliant. Anna Funder is also my pin-up girl. She's this glamorous international lawyer with long blonde hair, and she's brilliant. Um, and then um, The Magic Faraway Tree. Everything starts with and comes back to The Magic Faraway Tree, the magic of climbing up a tree with all these characters and going to other lands and experiencing other places. That, I think, is what fueled my desire to be a foreign correspondent and has fueled all my desires to travel and learn about the world and then come home safely, which they always manage to do despite getting caught in Dame Slap's school and um, getting turned into objects by wicked spells and all sorts of terrible things. They used their ingenuity and um, bravery and they got home down that tree. Tanya, thank you so much for this chat today. I know with our previous chats and other media things that you do, they've been centred around the books that you've put out. So, it's a very – somewhat controlled environment because you know yes. what you're going to be talking about. It's something you've already written about that's out there. Um, so there's that level of safety there. Whereas yes. today we've spoken about things that you've not written in any of your books no. that we did have a, a quick chat beforehand to set some boundaries and, you know, see what you're comfortable with. But you've been so incredibly generous with sharing stories that no, that we haven't heard before, not or no mm. one can read them anywhere, and you've been no. so candid, and it's been such a bloody privilege. Oh, thank you. Steph. Look, thank you. I, you know, much of my life, I've that fear of not being good enough and not having self confidence has, and it's. But as I've got older, I've realised it's not just me. So, if anything I have said today can in any way encourage somebody else to have a go at their dream, then it's worth it.